Thank you for listening to this gospel resource from Cornerstone Baptist Church in Wiley, Texas. Feel free to use or share this resource, but we ask that you not alter the content in any way. For more information about Cornerstone Baptist Church, please visit us at cornerstonewiley.org. Carolyn and I are very thankful to get to be with you all. Texas is for us home, even though we haven't lived here since 1981. When we got married in 1979, we were committed to living in Texas the rest of our lives. And then in God's providence, as Mark said, we've been, really Psalm 90 has been kind of the guiding principle of choosing where to live, which is, you know, teach us to number our days, establish the work of our hands. And so trying to go where we can be most useful. And sometimes that's San Diego and sometimes that's Saudi Arabia. And uh, now it's Charlotte, North Carolina. We're very thankful. It's wonderful to, I mean, with the Richies, we go back again, I think about 1977 or eight. And we have known a lot of people since then. We've had friends who have fallen away. We've had even marriages that have fallen apart among our friends. We've had people who've gone through difficulties. And so it's just a great blessing to see 40 something years later, 45 years later, God has preserved us in faith and in marriage and family, and that's not to be taken for granted. It is a blessing. Uh, We used to joke, actually, our kids, even though we were always living away, we came back once or twice a year and we got all the kids together. And our kids, we said, we're here. Oh, they, of course, knew the Richies. They haven't thought of them. They think of them as they were as small children, not uh, grown adults as they are now, but we were always together. But Mark would always... We'd go get together and we would argue about whose privilege was the greater that we would grant time together. And the privilege tonight definitely is mine. A couple of the things I'll mention. Uh, One would be that Carol and I brought some of our books with us. We're selling them at approximately our cost, so it's not going to change my life whether you buy books or not. You know, when you're like me, you're just happy some publisher published your book. And... uh, we sell them for about what it costs us, including postage. I'll mention a couple things. One is that Caroline and her co-author have signed. They, this week they recorded the Audible book for uh, their book, When Words Matter Most, which is what Caroline is talking about with, uh, and with the ladies tomorrow. But they got a stack of them and signed. both authors signed it because they were together in Charlotte. One lives in Houston, yeah, Caroline in Charlotte, but they're... Anyway, so there's some that are signed. And then I know we have a lot of young people here. The most recent thing I've written is called How to Love Difficult Parents. <laughs> so uh, I'm sure those will go real fast. Uh, actually, it's more designed for young adults who are facing some of the challenges with parents who are living irresponsibly. So actually, I'm sure none of you need that. Everything here is just fine. And when Mark was thinking in terms of a theme, the thing that, as I looked at the titles we've chosen of the messages, would really be relationships. Uh, We're going to talk about marriage. We're going to talk about uh, women encouraging each other. Caroline will talk about anger and how that affects relationships, and then biblical peacemaking. And so I think that does tie it together. Also, we're going to talk about prospective marriage relationships tomorrow. And so that'll be what I would say holds things together. Uh, Caroline and I do a great deal of marriage counseling, and this first talk will be kind of based on Scripture and how we view Scripture in that experience. Uh, More broadly in culture, like even after the recent election and you see the decline of the family in our country, sometimes you can think, well, what could we do to reverse the trends with LGBTQ and homosexual marriage and how the family is in decline. And I think some Christians may be called to be engaged politically. But the best way I think we can fight the evil in our culture, maybe more like the early church did, they weren't really expecting to take over, but we can live lives as lights where our marriages demonstrate the design that God has. And to fight for marriage in that sense as husbands and wives and in our families Uh, And that can be a testimony even to our unsafe friends, relatives, people we work with. And Carol and I, when we counsel couples, one thing, when they come for counseling, especially even sometimes people who hardly know us or don't know us at all, 
Things are usually pretty rough. People don't come for marriage counseling because things are great. And sometimes it's really, really awful. And we've got a couple cases going on right now, long distance, where I may refer to some of the things we've learned from that. But it's, it's really, really hard. And sometimes it's, I've even thought, why don't you bring a copy of your wedding photo? And let's look at that and remember that there was a time when you were so happy to be together. And what happened that now you can hardly stand to be in the same room together. And several years ago, at our IBCD, our counseling ministry for churches, we had a conference and we'd covered whole role of husband, role of wife, some of the basics. And the guy organizing the conference said, why don't you just take, okay, you've been doing marriage counseling for now it'd be 40 something, about 40 years anyway. What are some of the most important lessons you've learned? And so this talk is gonna be six keys to preserving, protecting, and strengthening marriages. And it's actually unique for me because it actually alliterates. Like I've only done that like three times in my life, but I have six things that begin with L. And some are more positive, some are more negative. And the first L is that the Lord must come first. When couples come in, sometimes for counseling, one thing actually very common is that you ask, well, how is your own walk with the Lord right now? Have you been in the Word? Have you been in prayer? Are you seeking the Lord? And, and very often when there is marriage conflict, individually they're not walking with the Lord either. Now, that, that's not shocking. First Peter 3, 7 says if a husband doesn't treat his wife properly, what's going to happen? His prayers will be hindered. And so uh, even more important than marriage is your walk with the Lord. And actually, very crucial point is if you're expecting your spouse to do for you what only God can do, you're going to get mad at your spouse when they let you down. And that's something, one of the biggest struggles we have in marriage. And so we need to be strengthened by the word of God. And we need to recognize our dependence upon God. Peter says, like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow with respect to salvation. Uh, Jesus in John 15 says, if you abide in me, you will bear much fruit. He talks about how it's the Father's will that we bear fruit. And so a big issue, and this is actually in contrast to what some Christian writers have said, your spouse is not going to fill your love tank in the ultimate sense. That you need the Lord primarily as the one who is your ultimate hope. Jeremiah 17 Verses 5 to 8, just kind of paraphrasing, he says, if you trust in men, you'll be like a bush in the desert. And sooner or later, people will let you down. But if you trust in God, you'll be like the tree planted by water. You have a security in the Lord that you're not dependent upon the rain that somebody else can give you. And so we would tell couples that if something is wrong in your relationship with your spouse, by the way, if there is something wrong, you think, well, he needs to change, she needs to change. Step one would be your own walk with the Lord. Now, along with your personal walk with the Lord, the relationship with your local church is also so important. In Hebrews 10, uh, 24, you know, we need to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves. This is the habit of some. And, and so, again, this is where it's so important. Now, by the way, I want to make a, little, a couple of asides as I'm going through this. One is, there were notes, don't pay attention to them if you don't want to, because I don't always follow them that carefully. Two would be, what I've seen so far, you have wonderful marriages, but someday you may need some of this, but all of you have friends and family who need this, even professing Christians. So the second aspect would be you know, to, to be engaged with the local church. And there are some people, I mean, there are people who profess to be Christians who are not members of churches or they're irregular in their participation in church. You need the local church. We need local churches, that not just the ones that have Krispy Kreme and Starbucks. We need churches where we have elders who are shepherds. We have preachers who are faithfully proclaiming the word to feed our souls. And, and so we need discipleship to be going on where men and women, you know, older women with younger women, like in Titus chapter 2. Positively, we've had families who have gone through crisis, and 
you might hear them say, we don't know what we would have done if we had not been in this church. And actually, we ran in San Diego, we had a biblical counseling center that invited people from the area to come in for biblical counseling. The main reason, by the way, we did that was so our trainees could watch real counseling. A secondary reason was to help the people who came in. Ideally, their churches should be doing the counseling. The, the biggest commonality of these situations was they were sometimes in you know, various kinds, small, usually big churches that were very program-oriented, but they weren't actually shepherding the sheep. And so the Lord must come first. You need the means of grace in the church. You also need the benefit of the fellowship of believers building each other up and shepherds who care for the sheep, godly older women who will come alongside the younger, less mature women. The second L is laziness. And actually, a few years ago, I had the privilege of performing a wedding for a relative. And I chose a certain text for the wedding sermon, homily, and it was only later I realized that in 2,000 years of church history, I may be the first person who ever chose this passage as the focal point of a wedding. And it's Proverbs chapter 24, beginning in verse 30. And he says, I passed by the field of the sluggard and by the vineyard of the man lacking sense. And behold, it was completely overgrown with thistles. Its surface was covered with nettles and its stone wall was broken down. When I saw it, I reflected upon it. I looked and received instruction. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. Then your poverty will come as a robber and your want like an armed man. So what does that have to do with marriage? I think in many marriages that have big problems, I mean, we're going to talk later about how adultery or huge issues can blow a marriage apart, violence, but probably more marriages die of neglect than any other cause. And again, you go back to they're married and you know, like even people courting, they're, I don't know who's married and who is almost married here, but there's some who look almost married by the way, they're kind of always close to each other physically. <laughs> but um, you know, when you're courting, dating, whatever your tribe calls it, um, that you, know, you, we, you just can't get enough time together. I remember in college and you know, we had curfews at Baylor and I, we would like back in the days before cell phones, uh, you get a long cord on your phone and go out in the hall and talk some more after you ran back before they locked you out because uh, you just couldn't have enough of, of being with that person. And yet what often happens is that over time there's children, there's career, there are activities, and just little by little uh, the marriage is neglected. In the picture in Proverbs 24, actually, since we moved to North Carolina, we enjoy driving out in the countryside, and sometimes we count the Confederate flags that are still flying or the Trump signs in rural North Carolina. But another thing we notice is farms. And you'll literally see on one side a farm where you've got like neat rows of cotton or whatever they're growing there, corn, and you've got a nice red barn. And then across the way, you'll have one where you can still kind of see where the rows were. And there may be a few like stalks of corn trying to grow up where it used to be, but it's overgrown with weeds and thorn bushes. And if there's a barn, the, peel, you know, the paint is peeling and it's teetering. What's the difference between this one and that one? Well, this one they kept taking care of. That one used to look like this one. And it, it wasn't that somebody tried to burn the barn down or destroy the field. All they did was just through neglect the... Uh, the marriages in farms, now marriages were neglected. Paul Tripp warns about inattention in marriage. Of course, that's another thing. And you know, people joke where you see a couple out supposedly on a date, and what are they doing during this date when they're sitting in a restaurant? They're looking at their phones. And again, I'm not saying it's wrong. You may even see me before the weekend is over looking at my phone here or there, but not giving the devotion to the relationship that is necessary. That even over time, husband and wife need to be devoted to spending time together, to praying together, to sharing life together. I mean, you know, courtship is usually fun. You know, you're doing fun things together, but marriage should be more fun than courtship, not less fun. We actually had a real case where there was a church in our area 
and they had an assistant pastor and the senior pastor contacted me and said, will you and Caroline please meet with this assistant pastor and his wife? Their marriage is in trouble. And they were probably early 30s. And the, the pastor actually wrote like a six-page indictment of his wife, point after point after point after point. And she just came in and blubbered and cried and was miserable in her marriage. And the short of it would be that she was very, very upset and sinfully angry in response to neglect. He's consumed with work and ministry and pulling away from her uh, and then sees her anger. And as we actually early in the session, I read this passage and immediately the pastor got it. That's our marriage. What was beautiful, what was once a beautiful field has been overgrown with thorns and thistles. Another thing I told them that could relate as well, I said that the interesting thing is I have hope for many reasons. One would be, I said to this man, what your wife desperately wants is your love and attention. And I remember saying, I am shocked, he said. I can't believe it. And because he thinks she's just angry at him. And I've actually, I think I'm going to write a blog called Subtitles, where what somebody is saying and what they mean may be two different things. And when she's angry and saying, you never pay attention to me, and you know, you're a terrible husband, whatever, the subtitle is, I want to feel loved. I feel neglected. And yes, she's expressing it very sinfully. We have to deal with that as well. Um, by the way, and then when he says, what do you mean you feel unloved? I provide an income, I work hard. Uh, the subtitle for that is, you're not paying attention to me, you don't understand what I'm saying. <laughs> That's how she sees it. Anyway, so laziness. And we're going to spend some time uh, tomorrow night and on Sunday morning talking about biblical conflict resolution, which means we can, you know, for now just say we need to do that. One, like conflict being like weeds, if you know, a little weed is left alone, it gets to be a big weed, and then it spreads and makes more weeds. And so we need to work at resolving conflicts in a biblical way. We need to avoid being quarrelsome. There's so many verses in scripture warning. Uh, you know, Proverbs, we're told, keeping away from strife is an honor for a man, but any fool will quarrel. And interestingly, I mean, we again counseling in cases and you know now that I'm 64 I used to think the old people I'm an old people but I see old people and you know, they'll be talking and just oh yeah last week we went to the store what do you mean last Thursday it was no last Tuesday and you know silly things sometimes just to hate quarreling uh, and then just to be willing positively to devote the effort towards the marriage to commit to put in the effort not just to avoid fighting but to build closeness, to have fun together. You're not wasting your time. You're not neglecting your children or your vocation if you're investing in your marriage. You're actually, all those things need a close marriage for them to work in the long term. So that's the second L. And there's going to be a quiz at the end. The third L is lying. And... I would use Ephesians chapter 4, verse 25. I especially appreciate this verse because Paul provides me with an illustration. He says, Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you with his neighbor, because we are members of one another. Uh, you know, marriages begin with the making of promises. And that's what the vows are to love, to honor, to cherish, to lead, to follow. And infidelity, I mean, the most obvious is adultery, but even you know, the problems with marriage is we break our vows, sometimes break the vows by quitting the marriage instead of in enduring through for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health. And within marriage, nothing is more important than mutual trust. And this verse actually brings that out and the context is he's describing now that you're Christians, you shouldn't live like the Gentiles. You shouldn't live like an unbeliever. 
It's fundamentally you've been united with Christ. Fundamentally you've been clothed with the righteousness of Christ, but you've put off your old self. You put on a new self, which means not just forgiveness, but a transformed life. And the example he gives is stop lying. And to give an analogy, and sometimes I've had one spouse, it's usually the husband, and I'll kind of make the point that it's almost like this person's native language is lying. Have you ever known anybody like that? Sometimes you may be working with somebody like that, somebody in your family is not a believer, and they tell, they say whatever they have to say in order to get what they want in the short term to avoid trouble, whatever motivation they may have. And when you become a Christian, you have this new nature. It'd be like if you moved to Romania or something, or where they speak another language, and you have to learn that new language. The language of the church, the language of God's people, is telling the truth. And lying undermines trust. Again, we'll, we'll talk about adultery in the next L, but when there is adultery, when there is, what, by the way, what do they call adultery? Unfaithfulness. And sometimes the aggrieved party would say, you know, I could forgive what she did, the act of what she did, but I don't know if I can ever trust her again. And the broken trust is often the big issue. And again, lying includes not just bold-faced lies, but manipulating the truth, spinning things, as they say. Aren't you glad the election is finally over? If you want to see a master class in lying, uh, that is all most all politicians. Um, and again, lying is, is selfish. The proverb even says how the lying tongue hates those to whom they lie. Lying is what you do to enemies. And you owe your spouse truth. Another aspect would also be if there's something that happened that your spouse has a right to know, then you're living a lie until you tell them. Concrete example. Uh, I was counseling one time a man who's actually a deacon in a church in our area in San Diego. And he came in and confessed that he was involved in some sinful sexual activity. And he wanted to stop, and that's commendable. But I said, your wife needs to know about this. She has a right to know. And you're living a lie until you tell her what is actually going on. And he was saying, oh no, I can't tell her, that would hurt her too much. Well, no, what you did is what is hurting her, and sooner or later when she finds out, and your sin will find you out, the Numbers 32:23 says, um, the length of the lying will just make things worse. Another thing, though, on the other side is that when in, within marriage, we need to make it safe for our spouse to tell the truth when the truth is not good. You know, James talks about confessing our sins to one another or confessing fault. And I have permission to tell the story. Let's say, for example, hypothetically, that a wife is driving in Escondido, California, where we used to live, and where it's illegal to talk on your cell phone, and she is talking on her cell phone, stopped at a traffic light, and a police car pulls up, and what did he say? <laughs> okay. <laughs> right. <laughs> Anyway, in California, fines are hundreds and hundreds of dollars for the least little infraction. But again, you could see, okay, do you hide that? Like, is there some way I could pay this and my husband wouldn't know? But then here's the deal, which is the challenging part. When your spouse does tell you something that's hard, do you respond with grace to make it safe for them to tell the truth? Or do you respond harshly in which case they're more tempted to hide the truth. And so we need to make it safe. You're, you're a sinner married to a sinner. And so even if they admit things that are painful and hard and things they may have struggled with or done wrong, that's an opportunity to show grace as God has shown grace to you. And again, that'll be a largely a topic on Sunday morning about showing that grace. Um, I'll give you 
One of the story that really happened where there was a man who was having real struggles with looking at things online that he should not look at. And his wife went away for a weekend for some family event and she came back and all of his filters had been uninstalled from his devices. And he insisted that that was just some technological miracle that had happened that he had nothing to do with. And maybe some hacker broke into her, his devices and uninstalled the Covenant Eyes or whatever he was using. More likely, he's trying to avoid trouble. He would be much better off just to say, I was wrong. I'll call one of the pastors to keep me more accountable. Please forgive me than to try to play the lying game. Okay, next. The next L is lust. Lust, I mean, if, if, if you know, the... the Lying can be like a cancer. Laziness can be like the weeds. Lust is like a bomb going off. And this is something that is really a major issue for me because we've done a lot of counseling in cases of marital unfaithfulness, of adultery. The closest friend I had in seminary uh, was exposed having had an affair with a woman in his church, and it actually was exposed eight years after it ended. And it was so hard on the church, it was devastating to us personally. I've had other friends in ministry, and then we've, we've counseled in many cases, even just people in churches or our church, who have uh, fallen into that sin. And you say, well, how could that happen? And a familiar verse, and as I've thought about this verse recently, it's a verse I want to read the whole thing because there's both the put off and the put on. In 2 Timothy 2, 22, he says, now flee from youthful lusts. And sometimes that's all we read. How does the verse continue? And pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. So we do need to flee from the temptation to lust, but also, you know, that's the put off, but the put on is to pursue righteousness and faith and, and peace. And my opinion, my belief is, I mean, applying this verse and what I've seen, is we need to be very careful. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12 says, Be careful if you think you stand, lest you fall. And I don't enjoy reading about what happened to David in 2 Samuel 11 and 12, but... It's such a powerful warning in the Bible that the guy that wrote all these psalms, this guy that had courage to fight Goliath and you know, do all these great things for the Lord, that I would assume through the neglect of his soul, you know, we should have been off to war, whatever. Is, that if, if that could happen to him, we need to be very careful. We need to be circumspect in our relationships with people of the opposite sex. And this is actually a matter of some controversy right now, even among evangelicals. And there are people saying that men and women who are married you know, should just be, you know, they should be able to be close friends and, and hang out and, and all of this. And we need to have a biblical balance. Like as an elder in my, our local church, I'm the shepherd of both men and women, not just the men. But there's a way that we can shepherd the women without having close, intimate personal relationships alone with them. Uh, like if, an, if a woman wants to meet with me for counsel, she can bring a friend or I'll bring Caroline or you know, we don't have to be, my rule would be not completely alone. Uh, you know, the, lately the Billy Graham rule, which is what he and his cohorts started in the 40s of not being alone in a restaurant or in a car, or certain situations with a woman both so they wouldn't be accused but also as they were traveling a lot just to be to, to resist the temptations that may come. Again, people have kind of maligned that. I think it's a pretty good idea because I've seen what can happen. And actually, when, we, when I've counseled, we've counseled in these cases of marital infidelity, how does an affair begin? Very, very few real Christians think, you know, I'm going to fall in love with somebody else and I'm going to commit adultery and I'm going to, you know, all the things that Proverbs 6 says, where I'm going to bring disgrace on myself and financial ruin on myself. My children won't respect me. I may be disciplined by the church. Sure, there, it's got to be worth it. And we all know now, no, it's not worth it. 
but it's, it's little by little. And you know, real stories where you know, Christian men, Christian women, and you know, they take their kids to soccer practice. And they just kind of chat on the sideline. I'm not saying it's wrong to chat with some of the opposite sex on the sideline at soccer, soccer practice, but things start just getting a bit closer. And so one week she's not there and he kind of misses her. And she, you know, she was looking forward to talking to him during the soccer practice. And they start talking a little more personally about the struggles one of them's having in marriage and how their husband doesn't really, her husband doesn't really appreciate her. And, 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 and it's just little by little by little. And then one time their hands kind of brush and one kind of squeezes and the other one squeezes back. And he thought when he squeezed, he'd get slapped. But, you know, they're on the road to something that will cause overwhelming harm. Uh, there's actually uh, was an article that was in the New York Times based on a psychological study. And as a biblical counselor, I think psychologists are good at observation they're just poor at interpretation and solution. So they can observe things in human nature that, I mean, really confirm what we're thinking. But there's an article called The 36 Questions That Lead to Love. And there was some psychologist who got people together. And the idea was a man and a woman need to sit together for a long period of time and honestly answer very personal questions while paying complete attention to each other. Guess what happened? They reported feeling attracted to each other. You know, in that close proximity, and the lady who wrote the article the New York Times did her own experiment and said she had the same thing. You know, research has confirmed that mutual vulnerability leads to closeness. And that's where you see like the military generals writing his autobiography and he's got a female writer and they're working together all the time or you know, man and woman actors and you know, they're both married to the people but they fall in love. Love isn't just something you fall into. Uh, and it's not, the world will almost say, well, if you fell in love, it was meant to be. No, we make choices. Again, don't think it can't happen to you. When you become engaged and then married, you're making a commitment to cut off all other romantic options. And it's not that once you get married or even once you get engaged that suddenly you're incapable of feeling attracted to anybody else. The world will almost say, well, if you feel attracted, then maybe that's the one for you. And uh, I like the answer, I think it was John Piper in one of his Q&A things. How do you know you're married to the right woman? He said, well, look on your marriage license. If that's her name, you're married to the right woman. <laughs> and I think it's, Wise. I think this would be something good in pre-marriage counseling, but for existing marriages to talk seriously about what are our expectations and guidelines with people of the opposite sex. And uh, that's actually, you know, a, a well-known pastor in your area, the Dallas-Fort Worth area, right? He's been benched for a while. And there was kind of a policy there. Oh, yeah, we encourage friendships among men and women and my friend Kevin DeYoung in his podcast said, I'm not sure my wife is sitting at home tonight thinking, boy, I wish Kevin had more close friendships with women. Um, so I think we need to be, you know, whatever the rules are to agree, privacy in terms of chats and texts and things that are being hidden. Uh, and so Caroline, I have just a few agreements that if I have an extended conversation with a female, even over the phone, I tell Caroline something about it. It's not something hidden from her. We don't have meals. There, there will be situations sometimes actually short of Martha Peace. She and I one time went to a conference. We both checked with our spouses while we drove from one place to the other or something. So it's not an absolute in every possible situation, but it's just a, a carefulness and, and an honesty and an openness. Just quite frankly, not flirting. And uh, the, the, what people think of innocent joking between men and women sometimes can be, in my opinion, dangerous. Not to discuss personal matters, uh, <clears throat> marriage struggles with someone of the opposite sex. The most, which, well this is gonna be to the next one actually, the most common reason, and it's not, shouldn't be surprising that half or more of the cases we deal with and adultery is where the professing Christian wife has fallen to that sin. And very often the reason is not so much that she was yearning for some kind of sexual relationship, 
the main reason is that here's a man who appreciates her, who thinks she's smart and beautiful, and with reference to her husband, it's like, I can never make this happy, guy happy anyway. He's always complaining about me. Again, we need to be very careful. And then if boundaries are crossed, we need to confess, seek uh, forgiveness, seek more accountability. Okay, the next L is lift one another up. And this is something that uh, now it's been several years ago. I don't know if any of you are familiar with the book Practicing Affirmation by Sam Crabtree. Sam is, I think, still the executive pastor at Bethlehem Baptist, where John Piper was pastor for so many years. I think their yards even backed up onto each other. And I was given this book several years ago. And I remember seeing the title and thinking, no, you don't understand. I'm a Calvinist. I believe in total depravity and a biblical counselor, and I'm against people's self-esteem being built up. Why should I have to read this book? And yet, as I read the book, it's, it's this book and another book I'm going to tell you about have had, a, I hope, a huge impact in my life because the subtitle is, uh, well, now I'm forgetting it exactly, but it's, it's that affirming God's work in his people, that's not the subtitle, but that's what he's getting at. It's somewhere in my notes. Um, and, but Crabtree's making the point that it's biblical to affirm the good work of God in other people. Can you think of any examples of affirmation in the Bible? I can wait. Huh? Not Jonah? Yeah, Paul commends Barnabas as a faithful servant. Song of Solomon, there's lots of affirmation going on there. Excellent. Something shortly before the Song of Solomon. Proverbs 31. It says in verse 28, her husband, her children rise up and bless her. Her husband also praises her saying, Many daughters have done nobly, but you excel them all. It's actually kind of interesting in the context of Proverbs 31, where it's describing the faithfulness of this woman who's diligent and doing all these great things. And it's like the climax of this is her husband recognizes how valuable she is, and he affirms how valuable she is to him for doing him good and not evil all the days of her life. What was one of the most messed up churches in the New Testament? Corinthians is usually the answer I get. And yet Paul finds something to commend in the Corinthians before he starts telling them all the things he needs to correct. And so a point Crabtree makes, and maybe even speaking personally as the Calvinistic biblical counselor, I was nervous about affirming. And I was really convinced from the book how important this is and how, how biblical it is to acknowledge, and again, this is where it becomes a God-centered thing, where you acknowledge God's good gifts in working through others, which is what Paul, even the, like in the Revelation letters, in Revelation chapter two and three to the seven churches, most of them, Jesus finds something to commend. He's looking for something to commend. And Crabtree in the book will say that affirmation is like, he uses the example of a bank account, where affirmation is like you're making deposits and the bank of relationship. And then correction and criticism is like making a withdrawal. The problem is, is that it takes several deposits to equal one withdrawal. By the way, this is really important in parenting too, isn't it? Um, and so, and he says, once you become significantly overdrawn, just like at the bank, when you're way overdrawn, you've had far more you've withdrawn than you've deposited, they will stop honoring your checks. And his suggestion would be that if all you're doing is criticizing somebody, they will stop listening to you. And the, the dynamic where I see that most of all is with, uh, quite frankly, parents and teenagers. It happens in marriage as well. Uh, another way that Crabtree illustrates it, he says, most romantic relationships begin with a great deal of affirmation and very little criticism, right? That even the fact this person finds me attractive and they want to be with me and, you know, this is all exciting and maybe they want to marry me. 
And his contention is that over time, often affirmation diminishes and criticism increases until it becomes reversed. And so it's, it's something we need to work at. And like I've already mentioned, that when I've seen especially women who have fallen into sexual sin, wives who have fallen into sexual sin, it wasn't because they wanted more sex. It was because their husband was neglecting them, their, their husband was criticizing, discouraging. Uh, just this week, Carol and I were counseling a couple, actually decided to a pastor's wife, who is extremely upset just because her husband treats her like she's stupid. And so it's so important. Now, a couple of uh, additional things to say about it. Thinking, well, what if you're married to an unbeliever? Or what if you have children who are an unbeliever? Can you still affirm them? I would say yes. That you can affirm what we would call common grace virtues even in unbelievers. In the sense, you may have an unbelieving child who is honest, who is hardworking in school, who is devoted to sports or music and does well. And so we can still affirm common grace virtues in other people. Uh, it should be honest, but, and that can be very, very powerful. Actually, true story, one night, short, anyway, we had our college graduate living with us, and I just turned around and said, Daniel, you are, I don't even know what I exactly, like, you're really good at blank. Next thing I know, he's pacing social media. My dad just said I'm good at whatever it was, which meant two things. One, I should have, well, it means I should have read the book earlier is what it means. Um, so your know, affirmation, again, to do it, just like Paul can say, I thank God for you. It's not just about you know, puffing you up, but it's, it's giving, now I remember the subtitle, giving God-centered praise to those who are not God. And it can be very, very public. It's a big deal in counseling as well. You know, people who come in for counseling often are very hopeless. Here they are, like the pastor and his wife who came in and their marriage is full of weeds and, you know, she thinks he wants to divorce. He thinks she hates him. And for them to begin to, sorry, when they come in, part of the hope you can give is that we're so glad you're here. You're seeking help from the Word of God. You're seeking help from godly counsel. And we believe God will honor that. And so you're trying to find something that God is doing that you know, we affirmed that each of them really wants to be loved by the other and that each of them does want the marriage to work and they don't want to quit, uh, try to find something. Oh, and also a word of warning, and this is especially parents, it could be husbands probably as well. The affirmation for the purpose of correcting doesn't work very well. I know sometimes in business, you, know, you tell somebody good they did and then you tell them five things they bad that they did. That, that pattern doesn't, that may, may not work. If you want to know more about what Crabtree wrote in his book, on the ibcd.org website, we have, I think, three talks he gave for us based on the book, which are free to listen to. The book is pretty short. It's worth reading as well. He also wrote another one called Practicing Thankfulness. He said he was going to write one on practicing criticism, but he said it would be much longer than the other ones. I'm not, I'm not sure why. So that's five. One more is, and actually it's a double L, and it's, I'm not sure if it's that way in your notes, but love not law, that our marriage needs to be founded on love and not law. Uh, both the Old and the New Testaments portray our marriages, or really the, the Lord's relationship with us as a marriage. And you know, Paul says in Ephesians 5, the mystery is great, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. And so uh, a few things about that. When when the Bible says, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church, the reason that's in Ephesians 5 and not Ephesians 1 is because you need Ephesians 1, what's in Ephesians 1 to 3 before you can get to chapter 5, if that makes sense. If you don't know the love of Christ, then you can't love your wife in a Christ-like way. Uh, one of the most common assignments we give to couples is to pray the prayer in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 to 21, where Paul prays that uh, we would be strengthened in the inner self, inner person, by the Spirit, 
to be able to grasp the height, the breadth, the length, and the depth of the love of Christ. And basically he's saying, I'm praying you'll understand what I just wrote in the first three chapters so that you can do what I'm telling you to do in the next three chapters. And so 1 John 4.19 says, we love because he first loved us. And so the solution to a marriage that lacks love isn't just to put on your to-do list, I'm going to buy flowers or candy or say a sweet thing or even affirmation. It's as we know the love of Christ and we're overwhelmed by the love of Christ and we, we grasp it as Paul in this. Actually, sometimes I'll just say your main assignment this week is not just to read the words, but to pray and beg God as a professing Christian to give you some comprehension not just to know about, but to know the love of Christ and to be thrilled by that love. And that should both empower, motivate you to make the effort to care for your spouse in a new way. And God's love for you in Christ is not based upon how well you've kept the law, is it? We would all be, by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. God's love towards you is a love of grace. And actually, there, there's, there's kind of a difference actually between the love of a husband and a wife and God's love for us. Because like 1 Corinthians 1 says, God basically chose the lowest, most awful things of the world so that by using us, he would bring great glory to himself and it would be no glory to us. When you got married, you chose the best you thought you could get, whatever you valued, Right? You didn't go out looking for the ugliest, meanest person you could possibly marry so you could be more Christ-like by loving that person, right? You went out and tried to find the person who hopefully was, you know, charm is deceitful, beauty is vain. You're looking most of all for character and godly character and all this. And yet, and this is actually the second book that I commend to you is Dave Harvey's When Sinners Say I Do is another one called I Still Do. And those audios are also on the IBCD website, some of them. But that when you realize you're the chief of sinners, but also you realize you've married a sinner, if, if you run your marriage based on law, and when your spouse doesn't meet your expectations, you judge them, you're going to have big problems. God has designed marriage to work on grace. You, you, you chose your love, now you love your choice. And, and love means forgiveness. Love means not treating them as they deserve, but treating them as Christ has treated you, which is very, very, very graciously. Um, one of the quotes that Keller has also in terms of how we um, manage this in marriage is that, you know, over the course of marriage, your spouse will change, right? And he has a quote in his book from somebody else. He says, my wife has actually been married to four different men. And they're all me. <laughs> And I've been married to maybe more than that number with different Carolines in 43 plus years. The young wife, the young mother. Uh, and now we've got having to admit the older woman counseling the younger woman, which is the stage of life she's in now. And when you marry, you're promising to marry not just who they are that day, but whatever they will become, uh, be it physically, personality, whatever else. And it's as you know God's grace for you that you can show that kind of love even if sometimes they don't deserve it. Again, God loves us not as we deserve, but according to grace. So marriages need to be founded on grace, not I'll treat you as well as you deserve, I'll treat you as well as you treat me. Um, we'll talk about this when we get to anger, that your, your spouse can't make you fleshly. Galatians 5.16 says, if you walk in the Spirit, you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. If you're walking with the Lord, you can show love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, even in a situation where it's difficult. The, the Lord can help you to do that, and that's what God may use to help your spouse to grow. Romans 2.4, the kindness of God leads us to repentance. And so... Within marriage, we, we, we want to learn to show grace. Uh, I'll make another observation I've seen in counseling and that I've seen several cases where a, a woman will have like a teenage son who gets into really terrible trouble. 
But nothing can stop her from loving that son, even though he's done awfully wrong things. I've almost, it's like, can the mother forget you know, her child in Isaiah? That, and yet, she holds her husband to a much higher standard in the terms of, you know, if she would love her husband with the same commitment she does her child, their marriage would be in much better shape. And so we want to have the kind of, that's, that's what the covenant is. Some people are called by God to stay in hard marriages. And God may use your gracious love to bring your spouse around. And really, the goal in marriage, in summary, should be, my prayer would be that when my spouse looks at me, they would have some sense, that's how Christ loves me. And the time they will most experience that is not when they're doing everything you want. It's when they disappoint you and you still show kindness and love to them. And only, that only can happen as the Spirit helps us. So, to summarize, pop quiz. What are the six L's? Blank comes first. The, the Lord comes first. Laziness like the weeds. Lies like a cancer. Lust like a bomb going off. Lift each other up in terms of affirmation and encouragement. And then love not law. And I'm sure we could add others. I don't know if they all would begin with L. But at the bottom of all of it is that as we've experienced God's grace and love in our own lives, and we enter into marriage, marriage is something that God is using not just for our joy, but also for our sanctification. And he's teaching us about his grace. He's teaching us to grow to be more Christ-like. And so as we look at marriage, or those of you who are single look towards marriage, marriage just isn't just about having somebody meet your needs. Marriage is about, as God brings you to somebody who will hopefully be used by him to make you more like Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the perfect wisdom of your word. Uh, Lord, you know the hearts of the people here. You know the condition of the marriages here. I pray, Lord, that if there were things here which applied in ways I don't understand, that you would, by your spirit, bring conviction and wisdom and, if necessary, repentance and reconciliation. I pray, Lord, that you would also help us to bring your wisdom of your word to others. And I pray for those who are yet single, that they would take these things to heart as they look ahead to the day when they will enter into their own marriages. We thank you for your grace to us in Christ, that you've loved us and forgiven us in spite of our many sins and faults. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.